May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. There is a kind of tendency that some people have to be antiquarians. So you take a time from history and you kind of idealize it and you think everything else has been all horrible since this one point in time that I've chosen that I like. And one tendency that, or one place where this tendency works its way out is sometimes in the church. People talk about, well, we need to return to primitive Christianity. We need to return to the first century. We need to turn to the, return to the first generation of Christians. And there's something noble about that impulse, I think. But at the same time, uh, what we find as we study those periods of history that some people romanticize and idealize is that they really weren't as great as those people might make it out to be. So last week, our epistle reading was from 2 Corinthians, and I mentioned just briefly in passing that we really can't romanticize the Corinthian community or idealize them, really. Um, and that's true because the Corinthians were a pretty dysfunctional group of people. It was a community that was suffering from divisions. Some of the members of the community were claiming to be followers of St. Paul. Others were claiming to be followers of Apollo, others of Cephas or St. Peter. There was also rank sexual immorality in the community. Uh, one a notable case in which a man was sleeping with his father's wife. Paul doesn't really tell us too many of the details there, and I think that's probably for the best. But the Corinthians were seemingly tolerating this behavior. Further, rather than handling their dirty laundry in private, they were filing lawsuits to settle disputes among themselves. It also seems like some of the congregants in Corinth were being attracted and misled by idolatry. And further, while the Corinthians seemed to be a community well endowed by the Holy Ghost in spiritual gifts, they were using those gifts as a way of competing against each other, as a way to overshadow and stand out over others who had inferior gifts. It's to this community then, that St. Paul writes the magnificent chapter that we read this morning in our epistle reading on love. This lyrically beautiful passage summarizes the solution to the Corinthians' various problems, and that solution can be encapsulated in that one word, charity or love. The first point that St. Paul makes in the reading about love is that love is what makes our actions good, or as scholar Richard Hayes says, Love is the ground of meaning. Even if you could speak in all the beautiful and varied tongues of humans, and even if you could speak in the heavenly languages of the angels, St. Paul tells us it wouldn't be meritorious. Because without love, these beautiful sounds are nothing better than a cacophony of noisy gongs and clashing cymbals. Or if we had the ability to prophesy and were given profound and deep theological insights and possessed a faith that could move mountains, it would count for absolutely nothing without love. And even if we were to commit great acts of charity or even give up our bodies for a noble cause, we would gain nothing without love. If love is not our underlying motive, then the outward action loses its value for us. 
Having established this, St. Paul then sketches the contours of what love should look like. And he's very careful. If you read it very closely, he emphasizes all those things that would correct the problems in the Corinthian community. Love is long-suffering, he says. It bears with people instead of discarding them because they might be an inconvenience. It's kind because it extends a real offer of friendship to others through generosity and being considerate. Simultaneously, it avoids all kinds of vices. It avoids envy and pride and unseemly behavior and self-seeking. It refuses to put itself above others by wanting to take from someone else or by puffing oneself up over others or making oneself the center of attention or being selfish and opportunistic. Further, love is not easily provoked because as St. Peter tells us in his general epistle, Love covers a multitude of sins. Love doesn't even think evil because it genuinely wants what's best for the person that we love. It doesn't rejoice in evil because it rejoices in truth. Love doesn't need false pretenses, but it accepts people as they are. To love is to serve others. It's to sacrifice oneself for others. And so our love should be modeled after the love that Christ displayed for us so that we can say, along with St. Paul, that love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. And love endures all things. With this sketch of love, Paul turns to compare the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love with the spiritual gifts. Love is far more valuable, he argues, than prophecies or tongues or knowledge. Prophecies fail, he says, and what we do have in them is incomplete. Tongues will cease, he says, because he foretells a day in which they won't be needed, most likely talking about after the gospel has spread through all the world and the canon of scripture completed. Finally, any profound knowledge that we possess will vanish away, and what we do possess is incomplete anyways. Through all this, St. Paul is looking forward to the return of our Lord, the beautiful restoration of the world and the new creation. When that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Prophecy, tongues, knowledge, And all the other gifts are in part because they are shadows. If we were to look too directly to which they point, we would be blinded. So the spiritual gifts that we have in the church are good. They're evidence of God's grace and his love for us. But also they aren't permanent in that we won't need them for all of eternity. The Apocalypse of St. John, the book of Revelation, visualizes this for us beautifully because St. Paul has this vision in which he sees very vividly the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And in this heavenly city, there is no need for a temple building because God dwells so directly with his people, so intimately with his people that there shall be no night there and they need no candle neither the light of the sun, for the Lord God giveth them light. 
So Paul, in this future that we're looking forward to, tells us that we have no need for these gifts. We have no need for these gifts because we will have attained the thing that these gifts help us to strive for. And so he compares where we are now to being like a child. Because when you're like a child, when you are a child, I mean, it's perfectly reasonable that you would speak, understand, and think like a child. Sometimes we have to tell Jude, remind Jude that. (laughs) It's healthy for children to be childish because that's what makes them children. However, childhood is not a permanent stage, though you could argue in our culture it has become a prolonged stage, but it's not supposed to be a permanent stage because when you mature into an adult, you have to grow up. You have to start speaking, understanding, and thinking like an adult. So here on earth, while we are like children, we need those spiritual gifts that God gives us, and we should cling to them, in fact. But those gifts are not ends in and of themselves. They're not eternal, and they're not ultimate. They are there to help inculcate in us a love for God. So while now our vision is shrouded, like in a mirror dimly lit, one day the veil will be lifted And we will see everything face to face. One day we will see God. And when we see him, we will be perfectly happy. Then shall I know, as St. Paul says, even also as I am known. So while the spiritual gifts will fade away, the theological virtues will not. And that means that faith, hope, and charity are of greater value than any of the spiritual gifts that we could possess. However, even among the theological virtues, there is a kind of hierarchy, as St. Paul tells us. Because while faith, hope, and charity all abide, the greatest of these is love. Theologian Karl Barth once said that love is the future eternal light shining in the present. It's a glimpse into that heavenly reality that we will experience right now. It therefore needs no change of form. When we love, we are grounding our behavior, our relationships, and our being in Christ, who reveals to us through his life and through his death that God is love. So this week, on Wednesday, we begin the great fast of Lent. Lent is a 40-day period of fasting that lasts from Ash Wednesday until Easter. And we fast typically by eating one regular meal a day and two small snacks. And further, on Ash Wednesday and on Fridays, we abstain from eating meat. We model this part of the church calendar after the 40 days that our Lord spent fasting in the desert towards the beginning of his ministry. This is a penitential season for us, a time for us to fast, a time for us to self-examine, a time for us to confess our sins, but it's also a time for us to practice discipline. So yesterday, we had a retreat in which we discussed some of those disciplines. We discussed how to fast. We discussed how to do self-examination, and we discussed why it's important for us to confess our sins. And if you weren't able to come, you can find the audio for that on our website. However, today's reading is an incredibly important reminder as we're beginning Lent for us to avoid some conceptual errors that we might make as we undergo this Lenten fast. 
So for example, our reading reminds us, I think, that Lent is not a time for us to try and earn God's love more. We know that God already loves us, and there is no shadow of turning within him. Lent is not about empty ritualism. It's not something that we do just to check off the boxes. No, Lent is a time where we train ourselves to run the race, like we talked about on Septuagesma Sunday. But why are we running in the first place? The answer is not to earn our salvation. It's not to try and get God to love us just a little bit more. Rather, it's because we love God who loved us so much that he gave his son for us. And so we come to recognize our dependence on him, our helplessness before him. And we recognize his great love for us revealed in the tortured man hanging on the cross. And when we look at that most beautiful image of the crucifix, we become, over, we become overcome with sorrow for our sins that put him there and a desire from a keen sense of love toward him that we would become like him. So I would encourage you, you should try and observe the Lenten fast. It's a good thing to do. You can find some handouts in the back of the church on kind of thin strips of paper about fasting. If you need any direction about how to do the Lenten fast, you can always come find me. But I would encourage you even more, even more than I would say you should fast. I would say that you should dedicate yourself to love, love of God, love of neighbor, and a healthy love of self. It's only from this place of true love that any fasting that we do during these 40 days of Lent will benefit your spiritual progress. As St. Paul says, though I bestow my goods to feed the poor, and though I give up my body to be burned and have not charity, it profiteth me nothing. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, Amen.